Welcome to Hello Universe, a podcast about spirituality in our everyday lives. We're your co-hosts, Kylie and Eva. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome back to Hello Universe. It's Eva here. And today we have an episode that is so near and dear to my heart because we are talking to my own personal mentor of two years. Amathana Santi. And I've honestly been waiting to have this conversation <laughs> since basically the first week I met her um, as part of my two-year training um, with the Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield course that I was in that I think maybe some of you may know about. Um, Ama was my personal meditation mentor throughout that time. I was so blessed that she came into my life, as you will gather for yourself i'm sure on this episode she is just a a powerhouse of love and wisdom and groundedness and serenity and joy and i uh, i feel just the deepest amount of respect for her but again also it's a lot of it is just gratitude like how lucky am i (laughs) that this wonderful being um was available to guide me through my own personal journey. Um, so before I introduce Ama, I'm gonna give you uh, some quick business. I I actually drop at the end of this episode, I, I mentioned in passing that I'm moving to Taiwan, <laughs> which I haven't set, mentioned publicly at all yet, um, but my life is <laughs> going on another adventure. Things have been changing quickly behind the scenes and I think we'll continue to do so but the plan is to travel for I will probably be traveling for um maybe the next six months possibly the next year (laughs) so more on that but that is to say that um my business structure may be changing and I don't know how many one-on-one clients I will be taking as I'm on the move. So I have one or two spaces left for somebody to jump in and work with me. If that is something that you've been interested in or curious about, um, you know, spiritual liberation is my deepest desire for all of us to our collective liberation and to have a more peaceful and enjoyable relationship with your mind. If that speaks to you, you can learn more about how to work with me one-on-one at my website, evaliao.com or Instagram, where I hang out the most. And Kylie is sharing alchemy, which is coming back again, folks. So if you don't already know, alchemy is Kylie's um, transformative, mystical, magical money program that is here to help you turn money into the crucible (laughs) of your greatest freedom. Um, She runs this course with her other life wife, Liz Simpson, who has been a guest on our show many times. And if money is something that that you know is meant to be medicine for you, meaning where you learn your deepest lessons about the self, or maybe money has just been... (laughs) your biggest pain in the ass, in which case it's the same thing. It's also a place in which you're meant to learn the deepest lessons about the self. I would highly recommend that you check out Alchemy. You can get on the wait list. Um, And, you know, usually if you're on the wait list, there's 
some awesome deals that and you know uh, early bird specials available to you. So you can check that out in the link in our show notes. Okay, so on to introduce uh, formally introducing Amma Kanasantis. Amma was a former a former um, Buddhist nun for 26 years, and she's been teaching intensive meditation retreats throughout the world in America, Europe, Australia, Asia since 1995. So, you know, she's the real deal. She's been living and doing this work. She is now currently the spiritual director of her organization, AwakeningTruth.org. And this podcast, I, I, this episode, I, I want to tell you, it was kind of, a, it's about safety and we get into attachment and how to actually feel safety, like in safe, which is something that I've, uh, I know is one of the things that, you know, something that I'm constantly at the end of the day, when I look at all my stuff, like safety is the thing that I long for um, most. And it's because of, you know, my own personal experience with trauma. And I think that's probably true for most of us. <laughs> but what does it mean to actually feel safe, like deep in our bones, or as we talk about in this episode, in our pelvic floor? <laughs> and so that's the content. But really, I think I want to focus on how this episode feels because that's where the juice is. And this conversation truly is just, um, I think, radiates deep connection and love and awe and beauty and wonder. Um, and that is just the magic of Ama being her wise and authentic self. And we get pretty deep or pretty hmm, pretty real, I would say, pretty quickly. <laughs> um, so I hope you enjoy this episode as much as Kylie and I did. We were both moved to tears um, many times, which hopefully by now you know is a sign that like the conversation's really damn good. All right, y'all. And as per usual, if you like the show, please subscribe, rate, review. The reviews are so helpful on Spotify or Apple. Um, sharing these episodes with friends really helps us grow the show. We love being able to do this and um, your support means the world to us. All right, now let's get into it. Amo, thank you for joining us in Hello Universe. It is such an honor. I'm so happy to have you here. Yes, and I'm delighted to be here with you today. Just smiling to see you both. Oh, thank you. So as you know, the first question is... What is something life is teaching you in this moment? And I can say it is to stay connected to my core and relax my pelvic floor. Um, oh, that is interesting. I think Kylie might have something to say. Yeah, I wasn't, I, I have been, uh, I took a break for the summer and haven't resumed, but I was in pelvic floor therapy for quite a while. And it is, I have, I have lots I could say about that and the gift of it and all of the many layers, but um, I just want to hear more. Yeah. About... Could you say, could you say more about that? Mm. Well, yes. My tendency in the past has been to merge with the field that I'm in. And when I have been doing my own personal work and particularly what happened when I drove from Colorado out here to California, and stopped in national parks to do ceremony. 
the ceremony was to reimagine my own origin story. And part of what I did was what I nicknamed belly bonding. Well, I put my belly on the earth or on rocks. And during that time, I had ceremony. And part of that ceremony was to energetically connect myself with to earth. And part of that was to deliberately reimagine my own origins so that I could encourage the positive images and release the negative ones. And what that did to my amazement was shifted my tendency to merge with the field. And so before I had never been effective in living in the city. And then after this, I can live in the city because I connect with my core but I relax my pelvic floor and I let the energy connect and ground through the earth. Wow. Um, Kylie has her eyes closed. I think she's really- I, mean, I almost started crying as you were saying that. I have so many questions because I, you know, we've been on this, doing this podcast for four years and I know that's something that people can relate to the struggle also of merging with your field. When you say merging with your field, do you mean you pick up the energy of the atmosphere and the, in your environment? Is that what you mean? Yeah. So because of personal circumstances with my family of origin, when I was very, very little, I learned to merge with my mother in order to regulate her in order to get my needs met. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't even know that I was doing that. I didn't even know that's what was happening until much, much, much recently. But what would happen is, is that anytime I was under any kind of stress, then my natural instinct was to become very porous in order to merge with the field around me in order to regulate it. Well, when you're living in a city, that is absolutely a very ineffective strategy because the, the chaos and the pain and the distress and the dysregulation that is present is not something that anyone is going to be able to regulate. Mm -hmm. So the more that I became porous, the more I became anxious. And the only way that I can resolve that was to leave the city. But as I understand more about connecting with my core, then what that does is it makes it possible for me to stay connected to my heart and connected to my intentions and connected to my capacity to stay grounded. And then from that, I have more ability to regulate myself as well as meet what is arising in the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit more? And sorry, Kylie, I'm just jumping in with the questions because I have so many, but. Um... Can I, before you ask a question, actually, can I interject? Sure. Because I just want to say um, thank you. I have come in here tonight a little raw. It's one of those days where I'm rolling in a little raw and um, you are, you're speaking directly to my core. You're speaking direct. Mm -hmm. I, I keep, I could keep wanting to cry. <laughs> um, well, I would invite you to let your tears just yeah, let them because, yeah. you know, for me, I have had many tears as well. And this is the time where many of us are raw. 
and it's just a matter of time whether we whether it's our turn mm -hmm. and so if this speaks to you and touches you and it feels like there's tears just let them we'll find a way through yeah it's funny because i am cry on the show all the time but i'm watching how I don't have a reason. I don't have a story, right? It's just your story immediately is inviting the tears. And I, it's just interesting to watch that the tears feel like they need us, like that, like I have to give them permission. And so that's something to watch. Yeah. You know, yeah. that there needs to be a story that they can't just come. I didn't want to pause. I didn't want to not comment on the. In the somatic the listeners can't see my somatic response so I just before you asked your question Eva I wanted to like acknowledge yeah but I mean this, this is the magic of Ama like <laughs> I don't know there's something about um something I always just really appreciated about sharing space with you Ama is your presence your you have such a your just your presence and authenticity I think is felt um by the people who you're in conversation with. Mm, I'm touched to hear you say that, Eva. Thank you. So my question is about what you call ceremony, which to me sounds a like a beautiful practice of really regulating yourself with the earth. Um, and is that something that you just intuitively decided to practice as you knew as you were you know going through these national parks and then also maybe saying more about how this connects with the pelvic floor so um it, this has been an evolution well first of all for for decades i've always felt the earth as a support as an ally as a protector and my journey with the earth and its evolution is itself a big long story in terms of the different kinds of things that I've done. And when I lived in a tiny little hut that was like five feet by eight feet in a national park in Australia for two years, then this journey took on a new level of meaning for me because I was a Buddhist nun at that time. And yet, living in that hut and the experiences that I had, my relationship with nature became like my primary teacher. And I learned how to work with nature so that it became more of a mirror of my own mind. And that has been an evolution that's been going on for decades, what that looks like and what kind of form it takes. And so the attachment repair work that I've been doing in the last few years, there's working with idealized or ideal parents, imagining ideal parents. But I've always had the earth as my number one ideal mama, who's been my holder, my protector, my feeder, my support, my the one that is attuned to me and encourages me. And so I have naturally combined the, this method that I learned with my own decades-long practice of using the earth to regulate myself and as a support. So the ceremony that I did 
was just that I would go into these national parks and I would find a rock that was like the right shape and in the right place for me to put my belly on it. And then I would just allow my awareness to drop so that I wasn't thinking and I wasn't, there was no story, but I just let my belly to connect with the earth and then allow my whole system to regulate feeling that direct bonding with the earth through my belly center. And then that process evolved. And then there was one session on the rock where I went through a very elaborate and deliberate reimagining of my own birth story, including my parents conceiving me and knowing that they had conceived me in a Taurus of love. And then when I was born, telling me about that and using that as a way to just know that that my origin comes from this experience of radical love, radical intentionality, and radical energy kind of skillfulness. And that shifted me so much that when I came to the city, to my utter surprise, I was able to live here in a way that I had never experienced in my life before, which was I felt like I could connect with the earth and I could feel that solid support behind me. And I could connect with my own core and connect with my own goodness. And that from that, I had a different basis that I was living from. For listeners, we did just have to have a break because I was heavy crying. Um, and I want to first of all say thank you, Amma, from the bottom of my heart. <laughs> um, you just spoke to something I didn't know I needed to hear. Um, Long-time listeners know, because I've shared this before, um, but uh, I was born when my mom was a teenager, and uh, I don't know who my biological dad is, um, and as you were speaking, I will probably crack in as I say this, as you were speaking, I could feel um, how much I have always wanted to know that I was uh, I can't even really put it into words but the feeling of like so intentionally chosen <laughs> which is funny because oh, a gift to me is always that um, my mother did choose me right like thankfully she had the choice which is its own thing but she did chose choose me and my dad who raised me did choose me and so I've always had this really deep sense of gratitude that I know my parents both really intentionally chose to parent and love me and <laughs> there's something I didn't know that I needed to feel which is being chosen from the from the very very, very beginning 
yeah. I mean, from conception really is what you were saying, Alma. Yeah. 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 Well, actually, in my imagination, it was before conception. Yeah. They set it up totally intentionally. They knew they deliberately, they set it up deliberately to conceive me intentionally. Yeah, as you're saying that, I'm feeling like, oh, yeah, the idea that you've just always been wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the other thing that you're speaking to so powerfully, Amma, is the, about the fact that we can rewrite our stories. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And so even though we cannot erase what happened, we can rewrite what happened. And as we do, we change our our physiology, we change our brain chemistry, we change, we change the way we think about ourselves and the way we feel about ourselves and the way we think and feel about others and the world. Mm, yeah. I mean, I can feel it right right now. <laughs> I do love like my body knew it was going to happen before I did because I s- kept saying like I keep wanting to cry my body was like this is just the warm-up <laughs> but I mean this is the beautiful this is the fucking beautiful thing is it's <laughs> like I can feel it I can feel the rewrite happening inside my body right now that's exactly right that's yeah. exactly right and that's why I feel so passionate about what I'm doing because I have been a meditator for 43 years. I've been a meditation teacher for 25 years. And as powerful as it is to know and practice and have deep and liberating insights, the meditation practice was not what allowed me to do this. It was another set of tools with a particular leverage and fulcrum that was designed right where this stuff is lodged and it can shift. I want to underscore that, this idea that it can shift. It can shift. And that's why I feel so excited because it can shift. I've seen it shift in myself. I've seen it shift in my colleagues. I see it shift in my students and my mentees. It can and it does shift. And the amazing thing is, is that it doesn't take a hundred years. You know, it actually is fairly quick. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, it was like a year and a half of doing this work to see life-changing results. Well, I feel like this is a good segue for you to speak more on this work that you're doing. If you'd like to share with us what exactly is the practice or, and what it is that you think is helpful. And um, because, okay, so I, 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 I want to, Hmm. I can anticipate what like the I have a thing where I come in with like the cynicism like meaning I want to ask the questions that 
I, I perceive a cynic might ask. It's really just my own cynicism probably being projected, but I think it's helpful, right? Because it's like, okay, and we talked about this earlier, how can we take this work and make it practical? And I think there's a lot of fluff out there that can say, hey, we can rewrite the story without actually having it be embodied. You know, like I feel like what you are talking about is something so much more beautiful. And then also when you were talking about like mother nature as your original mama, like that brought me to tears just because it speaks so deeply to something that I intuitively feel to be true in my body as well, just the connection with this earth. But there is the fluff out there that I see is like, oh yeah, just just shift your story, just like shift the narrative. And then I think people get frustrated with that, right? Because they're like, well, if it was so easy, I would have done it already. And they get jaded with this work. So I wanna hear what you're talking about. So this is not about positive affirmation. Mm -hmm. It's different than that. Mm -hmm. And it comes from the work of Dr. Dan Brown and David Elliott, mm -hmm. who both are PhD uh, psych clinical psychologists from Harvard University. And what they came up with is a three-pillar protocol, which they designed as a psychotherapeutic tool. And the first part is co-regulation, which they envisioned as working with the psychotherapist and the relationship of collaboration and support with the psychotherapist. The second pillar is what they called mentalization. What we use is meditation. And so there isn't really, uh, I'll, there's the nuances between what cognitive mentalization means and meditation is nuanced it's there's an overlap of the same thing and then the third pillar is the ideal parent figures which is to imagine parents that have the qualities of uh, they are able to protect and keep you safe they are attuned to what you're feeling and recognize it easily they delight in you being you. Mm. They encourage you to express your own authentic nature and to explore. And they are a safe haven to return to, steady and reliable, without in any way being intrusive or controlling. Mm. And so what happens when we are little when we don't get enough of those five qualities is that we end up with uh, strategies to compensate. And those strategies then can be identified as attachment formations, attachment strategies. Mm -hmm. And in adults, they're called anxious attachment, dismissive attachment. And if you've got both anxious and dismissive patterns, then it's called disorganized attachment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when we have enough of those five qualities when we have enough safety enough support when we have attunement when we have encouragement to express ourselves and to explore when we have a safe haven a reliable safe haven to return to we have a secure attachment to our primary caretakers caregivers and so the reason why this is different than positive affirmation is, is that we're not using an idea that things are better. 
what we're doing is we're creating the direct experience of the qualities and feeling them in our minds and our hearts and our bodies in our nervous system so that we can know what safety and protection feel like we can know what attunement feels like we can know the direct experience of having somebody delight in us encourage us allow us to explore and be completely available when things go wrong and we need support to figure it out and so as our nervous system gets acquainted with these direct experiences, it can't differentiate between something that is imagined and something that is really happening. And the result of doing this is, is that our body starts to reorganize around the presence of those five qualities. Yes, 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 yes. I have lots I could say. Kylie, what's coming up for you? Hmm. Um, I'm just soaking this all up. Um, I think I, I think I have a question. So one of the things that I observe in my own practices, um, and with clients is. So say you're hungry to feel like someone delights in your presence, right? And you invite that feeling of like really being delighted into your body. One of the things that I find is <laughs> my body is like really not sure about being delighted, <laughs> right? Meaning there's this experience that I often have where I can feel all the ways that I am like scurrying away from the experience itself right it's the thing that I want and I'm also like you know trying to back away which um I've you know uh, or I just buffer right or it's just an intellectual thing right and I just am, like I'm telling a story but my body's like we're just checked out <laughs> and so I'm wondering if you could speak to that tension and and more so first of all, it's completely natural when we haven't had those experiences that there's some ambivalence about having them. There's a lack of confidence or trust that they're authentic. Or sometimes there's resistance to feeling them. Sometimes there can be a lot of grief that we actually didn't have them. So there's all kinds of stuff and all of that is natural. So part of the reason why this was created as a psychotherapeutic tool is so that in working with a psychotherapist, all that stuff comes up and it becomes part of the practice. But the way that they work with it in the practice is that they have the ideal parents respond exactly in the right way to understand those things are coming up, to help you make sense out of why they're coming up and to help support, soothe and comfort you until they slowly shift. Mm -hmm. so the ideal parents are the number one like like lubricator they're both the ones that bring it and they're the ones that help you receive it mm -hmm. yeah i should so um oh so uh the wonderful like confluence of connections here is that um 
Federico has also been on the podcast. So let's see. Federico and I are both um, students of AMA's or you are our mentor. Federico and I met in the program, have become really good friends and have now run a program together. And so IPF is actually something that we do in the program that Federico brought in. And so, and it's also something that I've been practicing personally that has just like blown so many things out of the water that I didn't know that I needed. But truly this practice of, um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, from personal experience, just healing the old wounds of like giving, getting what I didn't receive and also seeing more clearly what I did need because I didn't really know what I needed until I started this practice. And to be able to experience that type of love and unconditional love, I think is what it is, is the thing that has created safety for me um, to move through the world more powerfully, I think. So I can speak from personal experience, you know, that I think this is really important work, this piece of it that I know of anyway. Thank you, Eva. Yeah. And we speak a little bit about, um, what did I wrote it down here? Merging or feeling like you were merging with your atmosphere, like taking in a lot of the things from living in a, in a, in a city, right? I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. And okay, so I'll, I'll again speak from my own personal experience. I'm always trying to figure out the balance of I'm someone who I feel like I need a lot of personal space. I love my solitude. I love time alone in nature. And I feel like it regulates me because being, yes, in very like high to meet, like with a lot of people and like it feels very like lots of stimulation. And then I get, I feel like I get overstimulated and then I have to go back and retreat you know and feel like I need to like tend to myself <laughs> and but it's it's kind of a painful way to live because I think the thing that I want more than anything else is actually connection with people right but then I feel overwhelmed <laughs> right so and I think this is like my uh housemate and I Eliza we're you know we're both around the same age 40s like we talk about this being like a millennial problem I mean, it's, it's a worldwide problem I think this idea people are hungry for community and also people feel alone and and I think it has a lot to do with this fact of what you were saying I don't know Kylie I don't know if you think this is a, all hypothesis but you know this this hypothesis of like <laughs> we want this connection but it's hard because we feel overwhelmed <laughs> and so yeah I mean I have a, just an, a, an additional layer because I agree i mean um even knows i've been through quite an evolution lately around um around really letting love in more deeply um and i have watched my i've been really closely observing my own patterns of like retreat right i mean I, <laughs> the imagery i've been using lately is about how like i like roly poly bug right <laughs> um um, but in particular, I was thinking about this today with my kids. Um, my six-year-old was homesick today and my, my four-year-old was at school and it was actually the first time that like he was sick without her. And also he's old enough to like, he read books for two hours. It was this actually very sweet thing where like he was home by himself, which is always already calmer with just one kid. But then also, um, 
like he could tend to himself. He wasn't that sick that he couldn't tend to himself. And the whole health, it was just like a chill vibe. Anyway, the two of us had this lunch where we made cheese, a cheese and cracker and fruit, like little, you know, array and pr- played Uno for an hour. And it was so, it was so, it was such a delight. It was so sweet. And one of the things I know is that I have to, I have to actually opt out of being around my kids sometimes because of, I'm, I'm now looking at it through the lens of what you were speaking to, but because I get kind of system over, overwhelmed and I have to kind of, it feels like I have to manage my cup, right? It's like, I have this much, I have this, I have a cup full of, um, you know, bandwidth and I have to make it last all day long. And so, um, and they're both really intense. They're four and six. And so I will watch myself retreat. Um, and I don't, at this stage, make that wrong, except to your point, Eva, I don't think it's actually what I want, right? So like in the morning for breakfast, I'll make them breakfast and then like drink my tea in the living room. And I think that's a totally acceptable thing to do, except I also think that there's, there are at least moments where if I were in a more, if I, if I had, if I weren't at like threatening system overwhelm as, as often as I am, uh, on like a, I think a nervous system level, probably, then I would really want to just sit and have breakfast with them, you know? So I guess I'm trying to give a specific story to this thing that you're speaking to, right? Which is this, like, how much of the retreat is like a really genuine desire for solitude and peace and quiet, which is beautiful. And how much of it is like roly poly bug in, like got a close door. protection, like almost like building a wall rather than, yeah. 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 But in some ways it doesn't matter because people are doing the best that they can with what they've got. And it really doesn't matter. What matters is, is that are there tools that can help you make different choices? Mm -hmm. That's what matters. Because one of the things that happens when our attachment formation is anything other than secure is that oftentimes we're living in a faux window of tolerance, which what that means in in ordinary language is that we're stressed out all the time and we don't even know it, which means that we're not ever completely relaxing. And it also means that we perceive danger everywhere we look and that we're not noticing neutral things. Okay. That's a physiological response to not being securely attached. Okay. Now you can't just with a good idea or you can't just with the idea that you want to have spend more time with your family or you want to be close, change that physiological set of patterning. And so when I say it doesn't matter, what I mean is, is that people do the best that they can with what they've got. Sometimes you need to go have tea in the living room when your kids are having breakfast in the, bre- in, in the kitchen because your system is overloaded. And sometimes you do want to connect, but you actually need to withdraw because that's the best that you can do with what you've got. But the reason why I feel so excited by this program is is that it changes or has the potential to change your baseline. And what that means is that you have different choices you have, you're no longer living in a constant state of stress. And when you're no longer living in a constant state of stress, you can see neutral and you're not constantly seeing danger. 
you have different choices. So this is not a philosophical question about how you should be. Mm. This is a question of how are you able to manage where you're at and what are tools that will help you widen the choices that you have? And so when I'm talking about the integrated meditation program, the reason why I feel passionate about it is because it has the potential for giving people different choices in a way that will affect many different parts of their life. One of the things that I'm receiving as you're saying this is, um, you know, it's so funny. The part of ourselves that's hard on ourselves is so sneaky, you know, like you tend to her in one way and then she's like, okay, I'll just, I'll just climb in the window. That's fine. (laughs) And, um, and I'm watching how, um, I really love your point. That's like, okay. One of the things I think that I do sometimes is I'm aware of exactly what you're saying, right? Like that I, my choice in this moment is somewhat constrained because of I, 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 of what my capacity is. And there's a part of me that asks this question of like, well, what do I really want? Right. If I, if I did have different choices, what would the true desire be? And what I hear is that that's actually just another way of me being unkind to myself because what is, is that in this moment, the living room tea is the choice that actually best supports my whole family. And therefore it's the choice and it's actually irrelevant. There is no true. Yes, of course. The only way that other question can be helpful is if it opens you up into doors of what can you do to change your baseline? Yeah. And then it becomes a different question. It's no longer whether you have tea in the living room, but what are other choices that you can act upon that then start changing your baseline? Yeah. I want to share. So what I took away from that was, um, I don't think I would have like called it this before, but as you're, as you were laying out the framework, I was like, oh, I can see how this is true. Is that you were talking about how um, I was talking about how I feel like I need a lot of alone time. And yet at the same time, I'm hungry for connection and not just my community is actually really what I long for. And then I have this fear that, but will I feel overstimulated with community? And um, what I saw was I could very much see basically how my insecure attachment makes it so that when I'm in a, like uh, a social situations for a very long time, I am actually perceiving danger. I would have never called it that, but it's like, there's a threat there for me. Like, that's why I'm exhausted. It's because, and that's why I need to like retreat back into my own space. It's because I can just see all of this connecting. Like, oh, yep, my disorganized like attachment stuff. Then when I'm like with people all the time, it's like, I feel like I can't just be fully just, if I was, if I was safe, I could be fully myself and then I wouldn't actually feel the overwhelm. And another sort of callback to a conversation from my meditation course was, Amma, I don't know if you remember Yuko, but she, we were talking about this phenomenon of like being tired. And she said that she, she would, she asked her one of her other teachers and she was like, you know, I'm having a great time at parties. And, but when I get home, I'm just like exhausted. And her teacher was like, his hypothesis to her at the time was like, I think it's because you're not being honest. And that blew her away. And it also blew me away because what I mean is it's like, I don't actually think I'm out there, you know, being inauthentic with people who I love, but I know that 
how honest and authentic we can be it can get subtler and subtler and subtler and subtler. Like you can really be more and more and more free. And so there are still ways in which I still don't yet feel safe and therefore I don't feel free. And then I have to retreat and then like rejuvenate. Did all that make sense? Did all that make sense? Yeah. So that's one whole way of looking at it. And I think that there's a valid way of looking at it, but another way of looking at it is how extroverted and how introverted you are. Right. Right. Because an extroverted introverted has nothing to do with whether you're securely attached or not. Mm. Okay. And so extroverted people tend to get energized by being in groups of people where lots of people are talking and going from one person to the next person to the next person. My mom was like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we would be in a party and she would speak to every single person in the entire party and come home and just be so happy. Mm-hmm. If I did that, I would be flattened. Right, right. You know? I mean, I've spent many, I've thought about this a lot. So I've spent a lot of time sort of considering my introverted extrovertedness. I'm definitely an introvert by in every sense of the word, but I think I've there was, I had a moment this summer where I saw clearly that I think I had over identified with being an introvert and I was almost using that label as a way to, I don't know how to explain it, not like an excuse, but block myself from, from like more connection. It was like an excuse for why I wouldn't be on socialized. And I don't know, I think I'm still figuring out, figuring it out, but I think there's something here for me about like, I don't, I've been calling myself an introvert like a deeply big introvert all these years many times on the podcast I talk about it and I think I might be more in the middle Mm. and I feel safe well yeah I think two things I'd say in response to that one is I I do think when I was younger I was like couldn't have been more on the extroverted end of the spectrum and as I've gotten older I have been able, and I have less of a need to like perform and prove, but I, I, I have less of, less of a need for other people to tell me that I am of value. And I have found, I am very much still an extrovert, but um, the the swing is much close. Like I, there's a more of an equilibrium, you know? So I do think it just shifts over time. Um, but the other thing that I'm thinking about is just identity, right? This is something about I think a lot about my relationship to ADHD it's like there's a way in which uh AMA for context I finally actually have integrated into my life or begun integrating like that I have this di- late late ad- you know adult diagnosis of ADHD and like maybe I could like let that be a thing that I use to help me rather than just this data point that I ignore um but but I think about how there's a way in which this information, it can be profoundly helpful, but then there's also a way that I couldn't, can wrap myself around it. And like, it can be a constraint of like, well, I can't do those things because, or I am always only this way because, and I kind of hear you saying that about introvert. It's like, there's this way that I think sometimes labels can be like so fucking liberating, right? Because it's this, oh, I feel seen and validated and other people have smart things to say about my experience that I like, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. And then I think there's also a place where we also have to like hold it really gently or even maybe let go of it because right. it, it then becomes like a constraint. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think we could say this about a lot of things. I mean, that was something that I was really processing, you know, during like, at the height of like Black Lives Matter, really over identifying, over identifying with my race and getting like so 
defensive and, and worked up every time because I was like, I, and I don't know, I just got really hyper identified forgetting that I'm not just Asian. I'm all of these other things too. And I think, yeah, that's the thing about labels is that they're helpful until they're not. Does that make sense? Yes. And the whole topic of race is loaded for all kinds of reasons. And, you know, sometimes what happens is, is that when you shine a light in a church, it doesn't have to be a church, it can be anywhere, you see all the particles. Mm -hmm. And it isn't that all of a sudden that there's more particles, but all of a sudden there's more light. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the enormous activation when you open up something like race is that that stuff has always been there. It's just that there never was the clarity to see it for what it was. And that just needs some time to, to metabolize in order to have it move through of its own accord in order to, to get to a different level, another level of integration, of understanding, of awareness of what it is to be of a particular location and to live in the world in the way that we, we are living. And so, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about is trauma. So it's not clinically correct to speak of attachment wounding as attachment or developmental trauma. It is only when you're dealing with a disorganized attachment, but the others are not clinically considered a trauma. But when we have different kinds of trauma, developmental trauma or situational trauma or epigenetic trauma or um, systemic trauma or vicarious trauma or compound trauma, they light our systems up in a particular way. And so something like race is both situational things that you've lived through microaggressions and macroaggressions and experiences of profound violence that you've lived through, or it's also systemic in the way that it's codified into laws and the way that people are experiencing situational things through a cultural view or value that isn't acted out. It's also epigenetic in the way that it's carried through the DNA by your ancestors. And it's also vicarious because we open up the news and we see other people who have targeted racial violence at them or that we're with a friend who's just had been lit up because somebody has experienced or offered her either a micro or a macro aggression and you're helping them to to metabolize it so when we have all of these things happening on all of these different levels it becomes nuanced as to what is the right way or what is the skillful way what is the way to metabolize all this stuff that's going on so it's been my own personal experience having quite a few of all of these different kinds of traumas that as I attend to the developmental trauma, as I become more securely attached in my repair, then it makes it possible for me to deal with these other kinds of traumas in a different way. So it's like the difference between swimming upstream and swimming downstream. When you're swimming upstream, the current is against you. Your whole system is wired to find danger in everything that you look. But when you have done enough of the attachment repair, you feel a basic sense of trust. You feel 
basically safe in your own skin. And then when you are dealing with these other layered traumas, then you can see them a little bit more clearly for what they are without it lighting up the whole entire field. And then as you can see them more clearly and you have a place of internal safety to return to, then you can do the work that you need in order to clear those traumas out of your system. And the more we clear all these different layers of trauma out of our system, the more that we really genuinely can experience safety and basic trust. So we mentioned at the top of the show that you know, part of, I think, what makes our podcast mm, lovely, I think, is the personal and the um, intimate parts of the show. And so I'm wondering, to as much comfort as you feel, yeah, as comfortable as you feel sharing, how this work has personally affected you, or maybe examples of how it showed up in your own life. Can I add a, can I add, sometimes we do this, we just tag team questions. So I've got another one and then you can pick from them. (laughs) (laughs) But I also am really eager to know what safety feels like for you. Oh, now that's good. That's a good interviewer question, Kylie. You're being a good interviewer coming in with the specific questions. (laughs) And I asked too, just to share, I asked because I am, even knows this, I'm constantly in awe of the way we well, especially when we're really devoted to the kind of healing that you're speaking of, that we are like living into devotion to a thing that in some ways we don't know. So when you first asked me, what is something that I'm working with? I said, I connect with my core and I relax my pelvic floor. So this answers both of your questions. Safety feels like I can actually relax my pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. And the backstory is I have never in my whole life been able to relax my pelvic floor up until very, very recently. Okay. So my personal story, I'm come from 100% Jewish ancestry. And my grandmother, both both of my grandmothers emigrated to this country. And my grandmother on my father's side fled pogroms and came to this country, never spoke about any single thing that she experienced in her homeland or on the journey over here. Never. She never went back to her homeland. She never saw her mother again. My mother was born three months premature. And 92 years ago, what that meant is is that people were put, babies, infants were put in a little box and they were not touched except to keep them alive. So my mother, in many ways, is a completely amazing human being. But there were some very, very fundamental things that she never was able to resolve. And I inherited them, though, both epigenetically as well as she didn't have, she had no idea what it was like to be taken care of. And so she didn't have the capacity 
to bring that level of care and presence to me. And so the fact that I never knew that my pelvic floor was even tight gives you some indication of the level of fear that I was living with. I didn't even know I was frightened. It was so baseline. It was so part of the wallpaper. I never even noticed it was there until I started to feel contrast. Can you speak to that, that moment of feeling contrast and how it starts to illuminate? So I also have had my own experiences of sexual trauma and my mother as well and many of my female ancestors as well. And so part of the contrast was in trauma release around releasing the holding in my pelvic floor and all of the images and associations connected with that. And instead of it being constantly tight, there's this experience of like butter melting in the sun of something that's open and soft and, and responsive and healthy and flexible and holding. I mean, even the words are medicine like that to be able, there's actually, there's so much here because I think the truth is a lot of people can't even describe what safety feels like you know that we don't have access to that so that's complicated in itself and then and then just there's just so many layers here and then the pelvic floor piece is interesting is because I think generally speaking already there's very little education about the pelvic floor I know nothing about my pelvic floor except that it's very important and that it's I've been told that like you know, I should learn about it because this should be taught in school. It's one of those many things that should be taught in school and nobody knows what it is. And so that's already a thing. And then the third piece is what you're talking about, Amma, which is that it's also complicated because it was just the wallpaper, like meaning that it was, you were tense and didn't even know you were tense because that was just the norm. And so that's the tricky part about, unconsciousness like it's like that's why awareness is such a gift because that's the moment that everything changes but prior to that then we're just in the we're in it and we don't know that we're in it and so it's tricky so I I want to put a little bit more background because I don't know how much the uh everybody here knows me and my background story yeah please share more as, as I think I would love for the audience to know so The background story is is that I have been meditating for 44 years, and I have been a meditation teacher for over 25 years. And I have been in, um, I was a Buddhist monastic for 28 years, including the two years I was a postulate. And living as a monastic, we were in an immersive Dharma environment. And what that meant was, is that We had three hours of meditation a day. Every two weeks, we would have a 10-hour meditation vigil. We would have a three-month retreat in the wintertime, a one-month of solitary retreat in the summertime. On top of that, we had 10-day retreats multiple times a year. 
And it wasn't just the the richness of how much Dharma teaching and the opportunities, but it allowed some very, very, very deep insight. Okay. And so you have to realize I did not know that I didn't feel safe on top of all of that. Mm. Okay. That amount of meditation, that amount of med- of insight, that amount of retreat, that amount of practice, and I didn't know I was unsafe. Okay, so the reason why, or one of the reasons why I feel so passionate about this integrated meditation program is because the meditation by itself does not change these structures that get put in place because of not having our basic needs met when we are in our formative years. Or at least it didn't for me, and it didn't for all of my colleagues, and it hasn't for any of my students. Mm -hmm. And this is why I love that you're my mentor. (laughs) It's just so perfect because I think you bring in the juice you bring in like the, you know, you have this background of experience and study, but also with a critical eye and, and from experience of being able to just be like, and also like, let's talk about all these other systemic things that are in the, and like the, and how to make this real and concrete and not just, you know, something I feel strongly about is like just going through the motions of the practice because that's like what we, what we do. So anyway just one of the many things I love about you. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm, I'm so, I love your story because I think it's so, it feels so relatable to me, right? This idea of like, I was already in devotion to myself in such deep ways. And yet there were these huge things that I didn't even understand. And so there's a part of that that's like, just this beautiful Ah, uh, like what a delight! The things that we still have yet to discover about ourselves, you know, or like the possibilities of how we might continue to feel increasingly safe and loved and free. And I also just like personally relate so much to, oh, oh, I don't like, oh, that's what. The- <laughs> I mean, I had my own experience with pelvic floor. Uh, and which I transparency had to pause. I was like, this is intense. And I have to, like, I just had to pause. Right. And it was intense in a really beautiful way. Not because the, not because the session is right, but just because what is what you're moving. Right. And this, this, the reason if you are someone who has a overly tight pelvic floor is because you're chronically scared. Well, you're scared to let, to soften it. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, that's, I, I, I'm also a big fan of like, um, yeah, I don't know. Pause, tend in another way, come back, right? Anyway. Um, but I also love that's why I asked the question about contrast, because I think that there's this interesting moment that I experience often where it's like I start to stick the con like the moment at the top of the show where I cried. Like my story has been rewritten. And I know that I'm gonna start that I will start to feel that. I think even even tomorrow. That's usually it shows up pretty fast when it's that that big and and I think that there's sometimes 
in the lead up to those big moments. And also on the other side, as we integrate, there's this moment where it's like you're half in, half out, right? There's this moment where like you, it can feel like frustration, but I also think sometimes it's the part of you that can finally see a little bit clearly that maybe the suffering isn't necessary. Does this make sense what I'm saying? The the, the half in, half out. Can you say more about that? Or Alma yeah. doesn't you, Alma? Uh, I think, I think <laughs> what, what I, what I, what I can relate to is, is that, you know, we are on a healing journey and there's times when we have like an intimation of something that's about to shift and it hasn't completely shifted yet. And so what I can also relate is, is that there's lots of, lots of times when I've had the feeling like I've closed a door behind me, but the door in front of me hasn't opened up yet. And so I'm in this place of like, okay, I know this is the right place to be, but I don't have a clue in the world what the next step is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that place of no longer and not yet. (laughs) could be a doozy. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, My my business partner and other, if I'm not talking about spiritual things with Eva, it's with my friend Liz, and we had a really intense like both of us crying kind of breakthrough call with each other the other day. And then that's what we said. We we're like, okay, so we burned the bridge down behind us, <laughs> right? Like the old way of doing things is no longer, we burned it down or as you said, closed the door. And uh, yeah, that like delicious moment where you're just in the in-between. And I think to the point of safety, I think one of the reasons you're in the unknown and that is inherently like can bring up all the things of unsafety. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we like pull away from that moment, right? Is that we we are afraid of, um, we're afraid of standing in that space where the bridge has burned behind us or the door is shut behind us and we don't know. Um, and so I'm curious to know what wisdom you might have to offer us around touching into safety or or compassion in that so i have a story to tell you okay wait 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 wait. can i my like logical brain has written down this question touching into safety ama you 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 have a story but i need to like close the loop on our previous conversation or it's going to drive me nuts because the question was what does safety feel like and so you had talked about you didn't know sorry i'm going back ama if we can but you said you you know after even all these years of living the monastic life and all this insight you still didn't know that you were not safe that you didn't feel safe so how did you what was like the moment and I'm sure there were many maybe a series of moments but what was the thing that was a light bulb moment that helped you see when I actually was able to realize that my pelvic floor was chronically tight and how did you realize that it seems like a simple enough question and I don't actually know how to answer it because I can't remember what the sequence of events was about what it was that's all of a sudden, oh, I was living in Hawaii. I was living in Hawaii and I was living in a garden and I was the caretaker of a small organic farm and I was living in a hut with a shamanic kitty and there was a bathtub, outdoor bathtub. And so in addition to being in this incredibly beautiful place that felt like I was living in the lap of the goddess Mm. and Pele was my personal trainer, I would spend 
almost every single day for a year and a half in the bathtub for somewhere between an hour and two a day, just floating in a bath that is soaking with medicinal herbs and fragrant flowers and the, the relaxation would allow me to recognize that my pelvic floor was tight. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Again, yeah, the contrast. The yeah. contrast. Yeah. yeah. I think I keep coming to this point because I think that we see it as like we see our suffering and we judge it or make it wrong. And yet over and over again, the contrast is like that's the moment where liberation is possible. That's the moment where space gets to possibly show right up. so it there was nothing wrong it just that it took that amount of contrast yeah that i mean that's amazing to be soaking in a bath for a year and a half to take to f- find the contrast yeah but that's what it took yeah 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 thank you for sharing that okay so making sure that we're on track <laughs> kylie you said you want to touch it how do we touch into safety and ama you had a, said you had a story Okay, so this is quite a story. So fasten your seatbelt. Oh, great. We love stories here. And you tell good stories. So let's go. So 1987, I had gone to Asia because I was interested in exploring whether or not I was going to be a Buddhist nun. And I had a three-month visa to go to a meditation retreat center in Burma that was known to be extraordinarily rigorous. And it was the first time I had been away from family and friends and boyfriends and lovers. And and the longer I was away, the more disorganized and disoriented I felt. And so I decided before I go to this monastery for a three-month intensive retreat, I need to go into nature, which was my favorite thing to do, to be regulated. So I decided I was going to go to India. I was in Kathmandu and I went to India and I went to McLeod Ganj. And it was 125 degrees in Delhi on the way through. And when I got to McLeod Ganj, which was in the foothills of the Himalayas, so it was reasonable temperature. I thought, well, what I'd love to do is to go head into the mountains So I was a single woman in my 20s, and I had made myself a few promises when I left. And one of them was that I wouldn't go into the mountains or in the wilderness in Asia by myself because I didn't think it would be safe, even though that was something that I loved to do when I was in the States. I went backpacking alone a lot. So my first thing that I needed to find was a companion. So I was in a Tibetan guest house and I found this person in the guest house. His name was Brian. And I took one look at him and he looked trustworthy. And I asked him if he wanted to go on an overnight trip with me. And he said, sure. So we started thinking about logics and logistics and what we needed and what we wanted to go and all the rest of that. So we packed our bags and we got our stuff or stuff ready. And we had a day pack and we had a backpack and we, we went up to to this treon, which is this saddle at 10,000 feet. And then the next morning he got up and was photographing goats and I was doing loving kindness meditation. And we left our big packs where we had slept 
and we headed down the mountain. And my happy place was walking off trail, especially when I was disorganized. If I could walk off trail, somehow not being able to know where I was returned me back into my coherence. Mm -hmm. So we had, you know, we were still getting to know each other. We had only met each other a day or two before. And, you know, we were having a nice conversation about strawberries on the way up. And we, we, we packed our packs, we slept out and he was photographing goats and I was doing loving kindness meditation. We took our small packs and then we head down off trail and enjoying ourselves, nothing exciting or spectacular. And we, we get to a stream and we had a picnic and I washed my face cause it was hot and we headed on up and we were heading up a very, very steep bowl of a mountain. And we got to a place and Brian climbed on top of this rock and I was in front of it and I had a hat on and I had sunglasses on and I was wearing a dress and I had my small day pack. And I was in front of this rock and I, I said to Brian, I said, did you notice that there was a, a cave here? And he asked me, can you climb up the rock? You know, and it was like, you know, super simple, but he didn't know me from, he'd only known me a day and a half. He didn't know I could climb up a rock. So yeah, it was not going to be a problem to climb up the rock. And so I'm sitting in front of this rock or standing in front of this rock, looking in with my sunglasses on and from the rock comes this rather unimaginable noise. And then from the rock comes running at me a very, very large bear at full speed. And when his face was an arm's distance from my face, several things happened very quickly. I went for refuge, I screamed, I jumped, I screamed again and I blanked out from fear. And when I first came to, the first moment of consciousness was unfathomable fear. Fear that had no edges to it, no boundaries to it, no parameters around it. It was infinite in all directions. But I had been a meditator for nine years at that point. So the first moment was fear, and then there was the knowing of fear. Mm. And then the second moment was the thought, there's no point in being afraid because you're going to die, and the knowing of that thought. And then my whole mind-body relaxed. And I went into a kind of luminous awareness where everything was utterly pristine. I was aware of my body. I was aware of the sensations I was experiencing because what had happened was somehow I had jumped and gotten pressed up against a horizontal branch of a tree and the bear was straddling me and his belly was pressed against my back and he was chewing on my head. So I could feel the pressure on my back and I could feel the pressure on my head. So the experience of 
there's no point in being afraid because you're going to die was like, there was no way I was going to be able to negotiate my way out of this one. You know, this is what was happening. It's time to get with the program and just shift gears. And so I did. And when I shifted gears, what I was aware of was curiosity. There was the body sensations. There was the experience of clarity, of curiosity, of interest, and quite a lot of joy. I was quite comfortable. Joy, because I was in the present moment and I was aware of what was going on and I wasn't reacting. I was just present watching what it was going to be like to die. So from that experience, the sound of OM welled up. And the very second that I focused on the sound of OM, the bear left. And Brian reported to me afterwards, he catapulted off of me, and ran 15 to 20 feet, and then ran away. Mm -hmm. And Brian was there in an instant, and he said, I wasn't that badly hurt. But the reality was, is that I had about eight wounds to my neck and to my head and to my face. I mean, he was saying that to try and mitigate the panic, like to keep you calm? or No, because none of the wounds had penetrated my skull. They were all superficial. Mm. He wasn't saying that, mm. just to say that. They were all superficial wounds. So I, I said, I'm going to be a little weird for a while. You're going to have to look after me. Go find where we left our packs. And I went and lied down in the shade and rested. And he came back and showed us where we had to go. And I had to, it was too steep for him to carry me. We both needed our hands and feet. So we both scrambled out. And when we got back up to our big packs, he had the most amazing first aid kit of any human I have ever traveled with or even known in my whole life. And he cut back my hair and he had gloves and he had scissors and he had bandages and he had gauze and he got me sorted out. And we walked three hours down the hill to the first place we could walk into. And then they called the Jeep and they took me to the hospital and they stitched me up and there was a whole big thing of follow-up afterwards. But the reason why this story is a, a powerful story, there's a couple reasons why. Because when we talk about the question of what is safe, in that moment of surrender, the good news, people think that the good news of the story is, is that I lived. Mm. But the good news of the story is that I was fine whether or not I lived. And so what is safety? When you use this story as a prompt to ask the question, what is safety? Mm. It makes for a very, very different inquiry. Oh, 
Yeah, that is a journey. <laughs> and as you soak that in, Kylie, I have an immediate question. Thank you for sharing that, Amma. I, I had heard that story before and had we had talked about if you know if it made sense to share it here. Um, you know, if it if it organically came in and um and and I yeah, I just had some questions about it the first time that I heard it that I never got to ask that are related to I guess some of what I'm feeling now is I have a sense. And I've said this before, this, I don't know where it comes from, just this idea of the truth is, is like, we're always safe. And I feel very cautious and even self-conscious saying that because I don't want that to invalidate actually when we are experiencing something really traumatizing and horrific and we don't actually feel safe. I mean, you know, having your you're your being attacked by a bear, I think is a great example of like, you know, you could argue that you're not safe in that moment. And yet it's almost like this intuitive sense of like, if all time is now, or if there's only, if there's no past and there's no future and it's just now and then now and then now and now and now, I do actually always feel safe. Of course, that's not how I'm living all the time, but, and this also I can say feels intellectual, but it is also something that I kind of feel to be true. So what's really important is to not use the transcendent to bypass the personal and the present, mm -hmm. okay? And so while what you're speaking to, Eva, is a philosophical truth, which I think is ultimately true, if I was in a trauma response, which would be a very obvious thing to be in with a situation like that, my personal experience would not be of safety. Mm. And then to give me a philosophical discourse that in fact I was safe is not meeting me where I'm at. Mm -hmm. So when you use truth to not meet somebody where they're at, it's not kind. Yes, yes. Even if it is true. Right, I completely on agree. An, on an ultimate level. Mm. But when you use truth in order to open up a window for somebody, that is kind. Mm. The trick when you're dealing with somebody who's in a trauma response is that if you say that you're safe to somebody in a trauma response, that can be very, very triggering. It can sound hugely dismissive because they have no capacity to access safety when they're in a trauma response. So unless you're telling them they're safe is a transmission of safety rather than a concept of safety, mm -hmm. chances are much better than not that that statement is gonna be totally unhelpful and cause more harm than help. Mm -hmm. As you're saying this, I'm thinking about how often we do just that to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right? Like Exactly. Exactly. Because we have an idea about where we should be and we miss where we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to go back to your story, though, like the reason I bring up this 
safety piece is because that's actually what I felt like was transmitted to me as you were speaking, this idea of it wasn't that, you know, the good news of the story wasn't that you lived. It was that in that moment, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was because you were a meditator or maybe it was just something clicks when we are having a near-death experience, but you described what you were describing in that moment was sounded like an experience of safety, meaning like you were just exactly right. That's exactly right. So if you can experience safety while you're being killed mm. or eaten by a bear, mm-hmm. that's a radical experience of safety. Right. And I think that's where my question comes from, because what you did transmit to me, I I don't know how I would react if I was ever in a near death experience, but I actually do feel and I would ever, you know, I couldn't I couldn't control my reaction. Right. Like my, my reaction would be my reaction. But I do feel like. I don't know, there's a kindness in what you shared of that. It doesn't have to be. me I don't know pure fear or I mean there was like your fear what you were saying you know what you described so beautifully of like a fear with no limits and I don't know I just think there's something kind about knowing that there's also another possibility that's right and so even in situations which are traumatic you can in the moment under certain unusual circumstances shift it and so that the the thing shifts and your own experiences is of one of okayness. I was okay. I was going to be okay, whether or not I lived. I think I'm just, I think, well, first of all, I think everything you have said feels like a transmission. Like my whole body <laughs> is having such a... um the vocal participant in our conversation i will sleep well tonight i can feel that <laughs> and i am very grateful for that um and i i hear so loud the invitation to not be in charge right that like that 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 is that's constant medicine for me but i in that story i heard this moment of like i, I there's a bear what else am i going to do <laughs> So that's certainly a really important thing not to be in charge. But for me, what just came forward was the meditation. Mm. And so, yeah, I had been a meditator, a meditation practitioner for nine years. And that was nine years of regular practice and regular retreats and deep insight. And so with meditation, there's the training to notice what's happening, but to notice what's noticing. Mm. And so I was aware of fear, but the next moment was the knowing of fear and the knowing of fear wasn't frightened. Mm -hmm. And because that wasn't frightened, the knowing wasn't frightened, then it gave the possibility for the rest of it to unfold in the way that it did. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't have had a toehold into being able to shift this situation, which it doesn't take a lot of imagination to figure out that it's natural that somebody would feel frightened. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that was the other thing that really touched me about that story that I don't have language for, but just the idea of the one who watches isn't afraid. The one who notices isn't afraid. I mean, that's so much of what my, you know, the med my the meditation practice is about is, you know, it's it's and it's where I find respite from all of my shit, basically, when I am like I can be the one who just notices. That's right. And so, you know, the power of meditation practice is utterly profound in terms of giving us the possibility to be peaceful, to be free, to be okay in the midst of things that are not peaceful, that are not free, and that are not okay. Mm -hmm. I have a question to pose to my YouTube meditators because I do not have a, I'm a deeply spiritual person. I have a lot of practices of connection, but regular meditation uh, like is, is and is not one. And I think one of my personal practices has a lot to do with like falling all the way down into a feeling. Um, and it is always difficult for me to explain, but it, I watch it transform into something else, right? So I find again and again that if I sink in res with, a, with the, the less resistance I have when I have no resistance and I fall all the way into shame, it alchemizes in front of my eyes into love, right? And I find that over and over again. And so my practice is, is very somatic and is very, um, always feels like a, a falling in I mean, it's not always, lots of times it's, but lots of times it's watching the not falling in. Right. But, but, but I think, and you know, my uncle who was incredibly, I was incredibly close to growing up my aunt and uncle, they're both, um, are, were Zen Buddhist and had, and so I had like this Buddhist influence in my whole life. It's a big part of my spiritual upbringing. And so I've always been I've read about a lot about and have had practice. And obviously, like, what am I trying to say? I find myself resistant to or not identifying with this idea of being watcher because in some ways it always feels like a disassociation or a disconnection when I think, ah, this is really hard for me to put into words. And I think ultimately we're probably talking about the same thing, but there's something about the language about like the watcher isn't afraid that feels. Like you wonder, you're suspicious. Sandpapery. It feels yeah. sandpapery for me because, yeah, it feels sandpapery. For Are me. you like suspicious that it's because you might be, because you think you have a um, habit of disassociating. And so therefore you are either suspicious that it's disassociating or you can't tell if it's it's no, it's that the, it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm suspicious when I'm doing it, that I'm disassociating. Cause I know in my body, what it feels like when I'm like connected, it's more like, I find the, I think I'm sandpapery to the framing, just the, the, the idea of being watcher feels like a thing that I push against. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Don't like the it does. And, no, I, I think what you're talking about is really important. And it's, uh, it's a subtle thing. In that experience, that's the way I described it. 
I just came across uh, something that uh, Titnan Han said, which talks about non-dual observation. And he speaks about this, but he speaks about it from more of the perspective that you're talking about. He says, the key to observation of meditation is that the subject of observation and the object of observation may not be regarded as separate. When we observe something, we are that thing. The non-duality is the key word. Observing the body in the body means that the process of observing, you don't stand outside your body as if you were an independent observer, but you identify yourself 100% with the object being observed. This is the only path that can lead to the penetration and direct experience of reality. In observation meditation, the body and mind are one entity, and the subject and the object of meditation are also one entity. There's no sword of discrimination that slices reality into many parts. The meditator is a fully engaged participant, not a separate observer. Yes. Yes. So what I cannot tell you is how what I did was so effective. Mm. But this is what you're speaking to. Yeah. Yeah. What Titnan Han speaks about is what you're speaking about. There's something in your system that is resisting being separated out. And he's affirming that that is correct, that there should be resistance to that because that actually is not the path to ultimate the experience of ultimate reality, the direct experience of reality. Thank you for that. Because I, I think I think sometimes that's a part of why I resist meditation itself, even though again, I have I have stillness. I mean, meditation is actually a million different things, right? But I, I think sometimes um I resist the kind of practice that I used to have when I was younger or that I used to like dabble in when I was younger for this very reason. And so I appreciate uh, you and <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh coming in to say like, no, no, it's not, you're good. Keep going, you can stick with this. Mm -hmm. And But also what I would ask you in your contemplation, because it's a profound question or a profound inquiry to stay with something and watch it transform is, what does it transform into? And when there's nothing that you're watching, what are you watching? Oh, I'm just gonna cry again. <laughs> I think I have spent so much, I know I've spent so much of my life separate from myself. And I think, um, yeah, I'm so, I mean, I actually don't think I realized this until this moment. And so I'm grateful for that. I think what I am seeking above all is perhaps not like peace, but is like to just really actually me which is of course ultimately the same right but that actually feels really liberating to see that's right 
And so that's one of the things that I feel really excited by. Because when you put these things together, when you bring repair to your attachment wounding, you both become more of who you are and you release the obstacles to understanding your essential nature, which is not in any way limited or defined by your characteristics of identity. And so your wholeness becomes inseparable from your awakening. And equally as important. Hmm. Hmm. Mic drop moment. That was very, very beautiful. I'm really... Yeah, this is one of those episodes, one of our own episodes that I feel like I would want to go back and listen to. I don't usually go back and listen, but... um... I think there's a lot of medicine in here for me personally. I'm sure Kylie can relate. Um, <laughs> and yeah. I think this might be a good time for us to, unless, and Kylie, you can follow up with any other last minute questions, but I want to know, Amma, how can we, how can people find you? How can they work with you? What would you like to share with our? So um, what I don't know is when this is going to be aired. Um, probably in like two weeks or so, or at least sometime within this month, within like the next four weeks. Okay. <laughs> so I am currently teaching a trauma-informed uh, Satipatthana course. And so we're halfway through, got two more sessions to that. And if people wanted to enroll, they'd be able to hear the recordings of the first part of it. But the more important thing really is the integrated meditation program, which is starting in January. And so this that's is the, the piece with the IPF and the, okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And Dan Brown and David Elliott co-founded it. And a year and a half ago, Dan Brown unfortunately passed away. Mm. And I have been working with David Elliott and he has endorsed me to... Uh, take his three pillar program and to use it for meditators mm -hmm. to take it out of a psychotherapeutic context and put it into a sangha context for meditators and so that program is starting in january and there's um, information about it and on the awakeningtruth.org website and I will be doing some introductory classes between now and then. Mm -hmm. And so if you're interested in it, contact me. What is ideal, if there's a small group of people who want to know, is to contact me to have me give an introductory talk for a small group of people. I'd be delighted to. Um, and then uh, I can talk about it and answer your questions and see if it might be a good match for you. And so what that program is, is going to be six months, and we're looking at a dedicated group of meditators who are willing to embark. It's a prototype, because this has never happened before, that this program is being taken out of a, the IPF model is being taken out of a psychotherapeutic context and turned into a Sangha activity for meditators. And I'm doing it because I feel that for a number of reasons. One, 
because I have had a lot of experience of co-regulation with peers and as a Sangha activity, and I have confidence that that can be done. But second of all, if this is effective in the ways that I suspect it may be, then what it does is it makes it a whole lot more available to a much larger group of people than if they have to be working one-on-one -on -one with a clinically trained psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. And what I have experienced is, is that the ramifications are profound in terms of changing physical health, core beliefs, schemas and structures, and my own basic sense of safety. So if this interests you at all, I encourage you to check out the Awakening Truth website. And then if there's enough interest with a couple of people to contact me directly and invite me to give a talk, and I'd be happy to. Mm -hmm. And we'll have all the links for that in the show notes. But I will say what I mean, as someone who loves working with a therapist and also loves having a sangha and community, I'm excited about the community aspect of this work. You know, like to me, I... I I'll just speak from personal experience. Like it's, it's just as powerful or it, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. It's not like one is, be is better than the other, like the one-on-one -on -one versus the community. They both serve in really beautiful ways, but I love the community aspect of this work. There's something I think so many of us, I think carry, you know, a sense of isolation and abandonment and shame so much of our childhood traumas have to do with feeling alone and so I think there is something so profound just seeing that other people are in it with you yes yeah, so they're in it with you and they're in it with you in a particular way because they are also helping you to do it yourself right and so one of my aspirations, and that will be something we'll see if we can allow it to emerge during the program, is to create uh, like a, um, a methodology that supports people to support each other. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that people can reach out to peers who have gone through this to support each other. Yeah. Wonderful, 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 wonderful. And then that brings us to our closing question. Well, it's bringing you joy, Amma. Well, I can say that what's bringing me joy is to have my basic needs. I have my health, my brain functions. I have food. I have water. I have clean air. I have enough to wear. I've got a roof over my head. I've got medicine. And all of that means that I live with joy a lot of the time. One of my favorite answers today, how beautiful. Kylie, would you like to go next? I actually want to comment on your joy and then I will go. But what I am grateful for in that share is how, how clearly true that is, meaning I think that's a thing that we feel a lot of should around, right? Like, oh, I, I should be grateful because I have X, Y, and Z. And then we're really unkind to ourselves. And what I what I love about your answer is I could feel I could feel the weight of 
compassion that that got you to that place, right? Of all the times where you didn't should and instead really loved yourself. And as a result, you stand in the place where, oh, how delightful to have my basic needs met. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is bringing me joy? Oh, I mean, I'm not going to lie this conversation. <laughs> this is like really... um it's just really beautiful medicine for me. And I am really grateful for that. My other joy. Um, so listeners know that I have my business that I run with Liz Simpson. And this week we, I, I'm giggling because there's a way that this is very silly, but it's been so great. We like implemented all these systems. Like we've been running this business for a year and a half with like a basically our messenger app. And we like got Slack, which is like for professional organizations. We have a free version of it, but like we have, we got a project management system. We like actually took the time and the care and the permission to build the, to build the infrastructure and to take, there's a, there's a way in which we have given ourselves permission to like honor what we love and honor our creation in a whole new way. And it's hilarious because it's the same conversation, but now it's on Slack instead of Telegram. And both of us feel like these like kind of giddy school kids about it. And, and, and actually similar to what I said about your joy, part of the joy is like, oh, it just feels so good to have all this like order and structure and organization and there were so many moments before this where we would like bump up against the system and be like, nope, I hate that. Can't do that. And we would like love ourselves through that. And so it's the celebration of, I think really taking ourselves seriously in a whole new way. And it's the celebration of all of these moments where we were really loving to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so this feels, there's like a liberation in this that, that, that doesn't, that doesn't normally, I think, show up with the project management software. <laughs> So that's my joy. Well, as a Capricorn who loves organization, I can see the, the where there's love in that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I get that. It's like yeah. supporting something that you love. Yeah. yeah. And it just feels, you know, I've shared before how, you know, I'm like a mad scientist scatterbrained person. And so systems also sometimes come with a lot of shame of like, you know, like tisk tisk. And so it also feels really good to see how much together we have built something that doesn't carry that weight and so this just gets to be a thing that takes care of both of us so I guess yeah like loving my creative partnership and specifically in this moment via systems and software <laughs> love it okay and I will share my joy there are a couple of things coming up because um Amma, I don't know if I haven't talked to you recently but I'm moving to I'm moving to Taiwan I'm moving out of the country uh I guess that's maybe the first time I've said that on the podcast. Um, and they don't have kale there and they don't have arugula. And so I've just been making my favorite salads and just eating them on repeat and just soaking it in because I won't be able to get those things. But also like with soup, which is my favorite chicken soup because it's fall and the weather here in Austin, Texas has been pristine which feels well-deserved because we've been in purgatory because, you know, it's been a hundred degrees for so long. And finally, all of a sudden, it's just the most beautiful weather ever. So it's a combination of all those things. <laughs> I love, I love your, 
leafy green. Oh my God, I'm obsessed. Thing. I have the best kale salad recipe. It's only four ingredients oh. if anybody wants it. I want it. I want no, it immediately. It's so easy. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, Amma, thank you. <laughs> this was amazing. Thank, thank you. Thank you. So you.